0: Okay, balls. 750 milliliter bottle of rum. Welcome to the Valissy podcast, a study in monology. This is your grumpy uncle, Peter. He will say words at you. I've had a common experience now. So I work at a job and I use Excel. I use a lot of, you know, the window office suite, which I think a lot of people do. I, I believe in offices, windows is like 90 some percent of the computers that are used. So a lot of people in the world use Word and Excel. And I think every single resume in the world says, you know, capable at Word and Excel, despite the fact, you know, they can just type things into it and it doesn't explode. I don't claim to be an Excel genius. I do know the basics. I know some basic maths. I did do some programming study, and programming's a bit generous. I did like internet programming study. So I, the bit I was good at was databases, and they use formulas to call up information. So I I can do that. And some of those formulas, the logic transfers over to Excel. So I've done some nice things in Excel, basically making things add up and showing your results in nice ways. I do not consider myself in any way adept, if I'm being really honest. Recently, I have been using a lot of colors, which is a nice thing because it helps illustrate the information you're trying to present to other people. And I think people respond to colors well. The issue I've been having is that I will work on an Excel sheet for, let's say, an hour or so. And of course, I'm trying to save regularly because I don't want to lose my work. And every time I save, it says... And it gives me a warning, it says, if you save in this format, there will be a minor loss of fidelity. So I'm thinking what it's saying is the shade of salmon that I've chosen will not really be that full shade of salmon, it will be a slightly paler imitation of the color salmon that I've chosen for this part of the Excel sheet. But the alternative would be to not save my work. In which case, if I was going to keep using this particular Excel sheet, I would have to keep my computer on and the document open for eternity in order to maintain the fidelity and my work. So I'm wondering, like, I guess this is one of those things that they have to do. They have to tell you, yes, it's not going to look exactly the same way if you save it in this format. But at the same time, are you not going to save your work to maintain that color of salmon? Cora question, what is the best thing to say after someone rejects you? I think I've actually maybe touched on this before uh, because I had a very long-term relationship that ended very, well, not suddenly. It it slowly degraded over time, but the actual breakup was quite sudden. Uh, She dumped me. So I actually think the biggest mistake you can make is to try to hurt them back. So they've rejected you and that hurts. You have to accept that. But if you want to hurt them back, The negative reaction isn't it. That's what they want. You have to be happy. And that will piss them off more. Like, why doesn't this person who I've rejected, why aren't they upset about it? Why don't they care more? That is actually more disruptive to their mentality than if you freak out. Like, oh, why don't you love me? Oh, why don't I love you? But then they're getting that acknowledgement. They're getting that sort of sense of, yes, this person wants me. And that is actually a form of affirmation. So when they reject you, if they do it, the more harshly they do it, the more pleasant you should be about it. So they're really shitty to you. Like, oh, you're a piece of shit. You're ugly. I would never date someone who's so beneath me. You go, your response should be just very pleasant. We'll be like, well, it's good to get that out in the open. It's nice to have heard that. Uh, I will certainly try to improve myself. Good luck to you in the future. That is the response they would never expect. So that to me is the one you should give. Uh, when my girlfriend in university broke up with me we've been together for like six years and of course in my mind we were in a rough spot we were going to get past it we were going to get married we're going to live our lives together it would have been a huge mistake so i'm really glad she pulled the trigger on that because i never would have had the guts to do it she said like i don't want to be with you anymore so they had a little conversation leading up to it but she got to it pretty quick and i just looked at her and said okay now she wanted a freak out and she didn't get it she wanted that affirmation that She wanted to know that I cared, but she wanted to reject me and know that I cared. She wanted it to be meaningful. And so she didn't get that. And there was a huge pause as she went through a roller coaster of emotions, I'm sure. And then the only words that came out of her mouth were, that's it? And I said, look, you are unhappy enough to break up with me. Do you think I am happy? Because really, if one person in the relationship is not happy, the other person is probably not happy as well. It's very rare to have one happy person who's oblivious to the unhappiness of the other person. And then in that moment, as sad as I was, because I was torn up, as sad as I was, I realized this was a better reaction for revenge. If I want to get her back, I just have to be okay with it. I have to be honestly move on really quickly and be happy about it and that would actually bother her more because she will think maybe i've made a mistake maybe things could have gone better maybe i should have tried harder and though that self doubt is literally the best revenge you can put on someone else so weirdly the answer is the harder someone rejects you the more pleasant and happy you should be about it so that you can move on and then just drop contact just don't talk to them anymore and you will find that they are Suddenly very interesting. Now, here's the thing. You should never go back to that well. That well is poisoned because if you go back, then it's probably not because they're actually interested in you. It's probably them trying to make sure back to a personal status in a mental state where they have won. So the instant they get you, they actually win. So it doesn't matter how hot they are. It doesn't matter how attractive they are to you. It doesn't matter what's going on. You have to accept the rejection and keep it. So when they come back to you later, should that actually be the way it works out, you actually have to reject them. Now, there's a secondary revenge. You get the satisfaction of rejecting them, but you can never give in to that lust or those basic feelings and go, yeah, let's get it on. Because then that is where you lose. Now, this takes a huge amount of willpower. I myself have failed at this instance several times. But if you have this piece of knowledge in the back of your head, should this come up, you will be prepared for it. And that preparation, just like G.I. Joe said, is half the battle. If you were here at the beginning of this podcast, this is like 170 episodes ago, you will have noticed early on I talked about the Hulk a lot. And it's because the Hulk is a very interesting character to me. He has a very interesting set of powers and abilities, but that's not what this is about. This is about the problem with making a Hulk movie. So there was a Hulk movie in 2003, and then they tried again in 2009, pre-Avengers. And then the idea was that Hulk was going to be in the Avengers films, but uh, Edward Norton was a bit difficult, apparently, to work with. And then they swapped him out for a different Hulk. Uh, In in the Avengers movie, they actually reference what happened when the Hulk was in New York in the previous film, where he destroyed part of New York. So that movie is technically canon. But the problem with a Hulk movie is that the Hulk, when he is in the Hulk state, is supposed to be a rage machine that just goes apeshit on everything. Now the problem is, the Hulk cannot randomly kill people and still be the hero. So when he grabs a big piece of concrete or a car or something and throws it at whatever, something else, a monster or the soldiers who are attacking him, he can't slaughter 50 or 100 soldiers and still be the good guy. He can't throw a car through a building and have the people inside die and still be the good guy. That's the problem with a Hulk film. Because when it's the Hulk fighting other humans, he can't actually be the Hulk. The Hulk is not supposed to be a thinking thing. He's supposed to be a raging animal that represents all our deepest passions and nothing else. And our deepest passions are to go apeshit on other people when we're angry. This was the genius of the Avengers movie, where the enemy were no longer human beings. So one of the first scenes is, uh, one of the scenes is when Captain America looks at Hulk and says, Hulk, smash. Then he smiles and he jumps up and he's, the first thing he does is grab an alien, swing around and smash it so hard into the wall of a building that it goes into the wall. Now, of course, that would be death. If he had done that to another human being, we could not feel comfortable cheering it on. So the genius of them making the Hulk fight aliens was, was just, it's the pinnacle. Now the thing is, the Hulk can be off his leash. He can be the Hulk that we all kind of want to see, just going crazy on everything around him. Uh, he kills those big space worms. He's just like smashing them left and right. He's just grabbing anyone in the air and throwing them down to the ground. They're all dying instantly upon impact because he's going to be throwing them so hard. And this is why it sucked so much why in Infinity War they made it so the Hulk couldn't come out. Because there were still aliens to be got. And There are so few opportunities in movies for us to see the Hulk really be the Hulk. So what I would like now is a Hulk movie, a proper one, not an origin story because we've had that and we actually don't care about origin stories anymore. And thank God because one origin story per every couple generations is more than enough. We need a story where the Hulk, where there's an alien invasion and the Hulk has to solve this problem by himself using Hulk logic, which is pretty much the same as He-Man logic and a lot of other logic, which is find something big and throw it at it until it stops. So I have on occasion talked about some stress dreams I've had in the past. And recently I had one and I always find that my stress dreams are weird in a funny way because I can't figure out what my unconscious is actually trying to tell me if it's trying to tell me something. A lot of people believe that there are messages in dreams, and I'm torn because sometimes it seems like there is, but then most of the time it seems like just random gibberish because chemicals are just being spilled out to your brain while you sleep. But I don't know what I was stressed about, so I only ever remember my dreams. Usually I can connect it to something that's coming up. In this case, I couldn't, so I don't really know what happened. But in this dream, I had to teach Japanese kids French. Now, that doesn't sound too stressful. Uh, I have been a teacher most of my life. So teaching, that aspect, was not the difficult part. I know what to do to teach people stuff. The issue comes up that I don't really speak French. So I don't know what the hiring process was. This dream skips to the first part of the first lesson, I assume. Uh, so how I got hired, how I got into the position is unexplained. Dreams don't tend to go into background very well. Now I am Canadian, so I have studied French. I studied French in school, but I studied French the same way a lot of Japanese students study English. Because if you come to Japan, you will find that most of them are not very fluent. They study English in order to pass a test. And once they pass the test, they never study English again. I was even worse than that. I studied French for the test but I wasn't very good at it, so it was actually pretty common that I wasn't going to pass the test either. So not only could I not speak French, I couldn't pass the test in French so that I wouldn't have to speak French later. The problem came in high school when we had to get to the point where I needed a certain level of French to be able to get into a Canadian university. In the hopes that I would never have to use French again, because once I gotten through that, I was done with French. So I was lucky I had a very kind grade 12 French teacher who basically said, if you do your best and don't cause me any problems, I will give you a 60 and that will pass you and then you won't have to speak French ever again. And I did everything he asked and I did my best and it wasn't very good, I'm sure, but he gave me the score he promised and I passed and I never had to speak French again. Uh, I do make very good French sounds. So one, I remember there was an exam. And you had, to talk, you had to read a paragraph and then write uh, how that man felt in French. So the story in the paragraph was there was a man on a boat and his wife fell overboard. And how did he feel afterwards? So I wrote a very passionate treaty to the lamentations this man must feel having lost his wife in the ocean. And it seemed like no one did anything to try to help get her back. The problem was I had mistaken wife for watch. So the real story was a man dropped his watch in the water and he couldn't get it back, quite obviously, because it sank to the bottom very quickly and people weren't going to turn around a boat or jump in after her. But what I wrote was very passionate about how this was the biggest thing that had ever happened in this man's life and he was never going to be the same again. I got very good marks because everything I said kind of made sense. It was just like, wow, this kid really thinks that guy loves his watch. But in actual fact, if had anyone spoken to me, at no point did I really have any sense of what was actually going on in the little story we read. So my response was actually totally inappropriate. So that establishes my French level. I know random words. I know some phrases. I make very good French sounds if you give me something to read, but a lot of times I don't know what I'm reading. And in the dream... That was the level of French I had. It wasn't like I was more capable in French in the dream than I am in real life. I was maybe the same, if not worse. And I was trying to teach them some words and I wasn't sure if the words were actually French. So that level of discomfort was something I woke up with. and It made me realize that, yeah, there's probably something going on in my life, but I don't know what that is because I don't process emotions very well. So if someone wants to do a little bit of dream interpretation, what does it mean when you're in a classroom Teaching something you don't know to other people. Because the only benefit here would be that the Japanese kids wouldn't know that they weren't learning proper French. I could just make up stuff and tell them it was French. They would find out eventually when they had to go do French with someone else. But I could survive for maybe up to a year before being caught. Now in the dream, I didn't have that thought. It was imposter syndrome. I shouldn't be here. I don't belong here. I'm the wrong person for this job. But if anyone has some insight into what that dream might mean, other than you were asleep and your brain is just being weird, I would love to hear it. Send a message at VelociPeter on Twitter or VelosaPodcast at gmail.com. Veloci, Velosa, Veloci, Veloci, The Veloci Velocip. Podcast. Podcast. Hey, sexy friend. He's making me his bitch. Thank you for listening. If you have questions or comments, you can tweet at VelociPeter or email VelociPodcast at gmail.com. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Acast or go to VelociPeter.com slash podcast. To me, to me he has very...